Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, the podcast where we shine a light on the people shaping the cybersecurity landscape to find out how they came to be where they are today. Talk about some of the events that have defined their careers, find out what motivates them, and maybe what still keeps them up at night. Today, myself and Mark are delighted to be joined by Katie Masuris, the founder and CEO of Luta Security. Luta Security specializes in helping governments and companies get better at working with hackers, offering end-to-end managed bug bounty services. Katie started off at eight years old on a Commodore 64, quickly discovering programming, then hacking, and turned her natural curiosity into a very successful career. Some of her many accomplishments include initiating the first bug bounty program for the Department of Defense, known as Hack the Pentagon, spearheading industry-leading initiatives such as Microsoft's bug bounty programs and Microsoft's vulnerability research. She also serves as a subject matter expert for the US national body of the International Standards Organization, conducts research as an MIT and Harvard visiting scholar, and holds positions on three federal cybersecurity advisory boards. Katie has taken her hacking knowledge and used this to shape the way hacking policy and regulations are handled today. So Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. And I believe you and Mark actually know each other. You've come across each other in the past, which is a really exciting thing. So Mark, when did you first come across Katie? Oh my gosh, feels like a lifetime ago. I think it was. I think I think adults who can drink could could possibly, yes. yeah. Like 20 plus years? Is it 20 years? Something something close to that. I've got to be that. I am notoriously like the worst person for timelines. I try to say it's something that I've always been bad about, but maybe it's like a getting older thing. I don't I don't know. But yeah, long, long That's time. That's great. Now. Well, glad to get here. You guys have some history together, so hopefully we can bring a little bit of that into the discussion today. Oh, you think we can remember well, I'm that? I'm hoping we can, we can say the right words to trigger some memories. And it's a lot of conference history. I don't know yeah, if you've yeah, been to yeah. a conference, James, but... No, yeah. Corridor con. Yeah. <laughs> so actually, talking about the past, one of the things I uh, was reading about you, Katie, was that when you were a child, you weren't really allowed to have access to screwdrivers. Why was that? Uh, well, the access was taken away because I was dismantling everything in the house and I'd try and put it back together. But like, for example... Back in the days when people would have a house phone, like a telephone. Now are we are we talking like rotary or? Yeah, no, buttons? not that bad. But okay, you know, okay. I took it apart, and the little you know the little hammer that hits the bell to make the phone ring. I mean, I took everything apart. So when <laughs> I put it all back together, I didn't quite mount the hammer perfectly. So it would just do this sort of anemic little ring, and we'd miss calls and everything. So. You know, not only was the screwdriver removed from my presence, but uh, my mom bought one of those clear phones because she figured, like, if she can see everything inside, maybe she's not going to take it apart. That that was not accurate. I still wanted to take it apart. And butter knives will work in a pinch. Just, you know, <laughs> tell tell the kids. Fantastic. So from pulling phones apart, you then had screwdrivers taken away, but you were given a Commodore 64. So what did, what did that kick off for you with the Commodore 64? Well, in my natural antisocial tendencies, you know, I had a lot of time to read that manual. And um, I thought it w- it came with one video game, which was Pac-Man. And, um, you know, I asked my mom for more video games, but she was a single working mom and she didn't have any more money. So she literally handed me the manual. We have a saying. Absolutely. Are we allowed to swear on this podcast? Oh, yeah. Okay. So she read the fucking manual, right? Yeah, so yeah. she RTFM'd me with the basic programming manual, and that was, you know, that that kicked off whatever it is that I do today. <laughs> That's amazing. So, yeah, I was good. like, did you just start to try to learn the program? Did you have any, like, first kind of stuff that you were more interested in? Like, were, were you, uh, I know for some people it's common where, like, you know, you had the game or so, and then you're, like, trying to maybe recreate your own game, or I, I, I can't even remember when I was, like, doing early DOS, there was like bananas or sorry, monkeys throwing bananas across the buildings game and like the code was on the system. And so, yeah, what, what kind of stuff were you messing with then? Well, I remember wanting to be an astronaut. So I wanted to like play with the graphics and the sprites and everything. So there I was like trying to make a rocket take off, but I'm, you know, clumsily programming this thing. And, and, you know, when I first got it, I didn't have any way to save my program. So I'd have to start over every night. And I did convince my mom to get, you know, what was called a data set, which was like a cassette tape, you know, way to to record your programs. Um, but the, I think the first thing that I programmed myself that worked, because, uh, you know, you're, you're copying examples out of the book at first just to learn the syntax. And I learned what syntax errors were, you know, it's like, oh, you need that semicolon? Neat. Okay, great. 
Um, but, you know, uh, I think the first thing I programmed was a text-based, like, choose-your-own-adventure type game. So if you if you all remember, like, the Zork games, it was like yeah. that. But I love choose-your-own-adventure books. So that was what I was programming. And um, I tried to get my little friends after dance class to come play the game, but they were like, that's cool. Where are your Barbies exactly? You know, they were <laughs> like... They were like, you can be over there. You've got a Barbie dream house, though. So let's, you know, let's get down to business. <laughs> so how did that natural curiosity that you had in, you know, how technology worked, you've learned to program, how did that turn into the becoming part of like the hacking scene in those early days? Well, I grew up in Boston. And, you know, when I got my first modem, quickly found um, a local bulletin board system called The Works. And that turned out that's where a lot of the early hacking group people were gathering um, online and they had a physical meetup in Harvard Square. And I remember taking the bus to Harvard Square and walking up to this super tall guy. And, you know, I'd heard descriptions of, you know, one of my heroes in this BBS. And I look at him up at him and I said, excuse me, are you the death vegetable? <laughs> and he is like, yes, yes, I am. And um, I didn't remember this, but apparently... I had practiced a little OPSEC and my face was painted like a tiger. So I was like in tiger cat makeup, walking up to Death Veggie being like, are, are you the Death Vegetable? And yeah, so we were, we've were we been friends ever since. Um, but yeah, that was sort of where I learned how to hack. There wasn't really a profession back then because this was like late 80s, early 90s. And it didn't come back around until like the for me career wise until like the late 2000s when I was a systems administrator working, you know, at MIT. I worked on the Human Genome Project there and then I worked in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics and we were getting attacked all the time. So picture this was like right around the release of I would say like Nessus 2.0 or something like some somewhere around yep. that that line. And I was like. I need to scan my networks. I remember this. This was something that, you know, we used to do with our own tools. Hey, look, this nice guy like wrote me a tool so I don't have to do it, but I can scan my own network. So that that was where it sort of picked back up career-wise. So that's like a very interesting timeline because there's essentially like the, um, like you're saying, kind of the start of everything at, at some level, right? Like the start of like early days of hacking, like the start of kind of, uh, this whole profession that now you can actually be employed and do things in that didn't quite like exist, you know, prior to that point, like, how, how do you think about like where everything's, I'm, I'm throwing out like the Oprah Winfrey question from the start. Uh, but like, how do you think about how things have like changed from, from back then and like, you know, the field today, like how it's evolved in like the last 20 years? Well, let me get my lawn chair out for a second like, here and the hose because no, um, no, honestly, yeah. it's, I think a lot of, in a lot of ways, just picking up, early computing when computers didn't do very much, right? You were, you know, you. I, I've said this before in other contexts, but it felt like, you know, what I imagine the first owners of automobiles felt like. You had to be a mechanic, you know? This thing was gonna drop yeah. you on a country road if you didn't know how to like open up the hood and, and know how it worked. So, you know, big difference between myself and my younger sister, who's seven and a half years younger, perfectly smart person, but literally grew up in a completely different, you know, graphical user interface environment. So she was a user of the computers, whereas we were, you know, programmers, hackers, like we had to do those yep. innovative and creative things to make it do, you know, more of what we wanted it to do. And um, I think that was that was super formative. So Back to my lawn chair. I feel like, you know, now we've got tons of different cybersecurity specialties. We've got all these different technology specialties, you know, even apart from the cybersecurity question. And so many people ask me, they're like, how, you know, how should I get started? What certifications? What boot camp should I do? What should I study? And I'm like, I don't know. I don't know. You know, I'm like, I have no idea. Because when we were getting started, we were like laying the railroad tracks ahead of our speeding bullet trains, you know, on technology. And so I have no idea. The thing I do tell people is that, look, there's new technology emerging all the time. Don't be intimidated by old timers like me um, because we are not the experts in the new technology. You get to be the expert in the new technology. So go for it. That's cool. Yeah. I, I, there's times where I think uh, nostalgic of the past. And then I remember like having to, you know, just recompile modem drivers just to get online. And then I'm like, ah, maybe I don't miss it. <laughs> 
but yeah, yeah. no, it's exactly that point. Or like almost breaking like, your display, yeah. right? Like yeah. just <laughs> irrevocably changing something and and like the early <laughs> Linux, especially, you're just like, that's never coming back. I'm nope. reinstalling from scratch. Like I'm just, <laughs> nope, it's gone forever. You know, can't see what I'm doing anymore because I broke my display. It, so. It's interesting that you're saying because it was, everything was so kind of early then that there was these like kind of constraints and so in some case, whereas like today it's like, there's so many different directions, so much information that you could almost just kind of, you know, take in and absorb stuff all day and, and kind of never try to do anything in one in one way, whereas it was almost kind of a, a forcing function to your point where you had to like, you know, actually dive in on a certain thing just to kind of make things work, right, in the, in the, in the kind of start of things. There's a lot of cultural cool. things as well, yeah. kind of of that time, like, you know, whether it's war games or, you know, the hackers hack the planet thing, and then at a more practical level, the things, you know, Loft Heavy Industries. We had Chris uh, Thomas on recently, Space Rogue, talking about the book, you know, how the hackers known as Loft changed the world. Did you feel like you were kind of riding that wave? Was that a big influence on you as you sort of went forward in your career? It was in, in you know, good ways and bad ways, right? Those guys were not as nice back then as they are now. <laughs> I mean, I consider them all my friends, right? But back then, you know, culturally, it was kind of like, do we hit on her? No, she's not interested. All right, shut her out, you know, and everything. So it was it was this like very annoying dynamic where I was kind of like knocking on the on the side door, um, you know, very with your face painted like a tiger. They, you yeah. know, that was my opsec. I was like, they'll never recognize me. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Maybe I'll maybe I'll show up in Vegas one day, just nostalgic wise, awesome. just like a tiger, awesome. right? But um, no, I mean, I think it was. I think yeah, it was. It was a lot of formative experiences, but in a lot of ways too, it actually influenced my decision not to major in computer science when I did go to college. I majored in molecular biology and math and minored in mathematics because I was like. The only job I could get, you know, this was like, so me going to college would have been the early 90s, right? The only job I could get would have been a programmer, kind of can't stand these guys. They're rude and they're mean and they're exclusionary and stuff. A lot, I would like to say a lot has changed. It has not. Um, but I thought to myself, well, if I cure cancer or if I cure AIDS, that's something worthwhile. So I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put my nerd brain to work. And plus my mom was a biologist. So it was, you know, or a biochemist. So it was kind of easy for me to picture myself doing that. Um, didn't have a lot of female role models. And even my female peers who were in the hacking scene were, you know, they were, we were treated like girlfriends or attempted girlfriends that went wrong, yeah. you know, kind of thing in a yeah. lot of ways. So yeah, I would say it was formative. So that was kind of the negative side of it. But on the good side of it, I would say um, that early culture and, and actually the culture around MIT and working at MIT is like one of the first places I worked professionally. Um, it did good things for me in that you had to just be ready to factually back up your assertions, right? If you're going to make a technical assertion, you better know it inside and out. So it was um, in a lot of ways, it just kind of prepared me mentally and emotionally for the world where, you know, as as a woman, I'm constantly being second guessed, um, you know, about my technical knowledge and whatnot. Uh, the times I've been called like an evangelist as opposed to a hacker drives me nuts. You know, I'm like, that's great. I, yes, I do talk about hacking, but that's not what I am, you know, kind of thing. Um, so, so, you know, it was formative, uh, but in good ways and bad ways. Then. You mentioned then from the MIT perspective, so you started coming back in, you saw these systems were under attack all the time. When did you first become interested in that bridging that gap between the hacking community and the people who are actually under attack? You know, more often than not, these kind of interactions were viewed with a high level of suspicion in the past. Well, so working at in the Human Genome Project, I just remember coming in one day and seeing uh, all the Windows machines were blue screened and it was a teardrop attack. So um, back then, you know, I think it was um, MIT's uh, systems managers, like the people in charge of setting up the original like Athena network and all that. They were vehemently anti firewall. Now, firewalls are just a speed bump, but it sure would have helped. So we had this fat pipe to the Internet. And if you could compromise any of the machines on that fat pipe, you suddenly had a launching point that was probably more powerful in terms of internet throughput traffic you could get 
sent out, you know. So all universities were absolutely, you know, hackers' favorite playground where you would bounce attacks through the university. But MIT was particularly delicious of a target because it just sat on that fat pipe. So there I was, you know, with hacking skills, but these were my computers. I'm, I'm supposed to protect them. But often I wasn't given admin or root, you know, depending on what it was, on the machines in question. So sometimes uh, it wasn't just me scanning my networks. It was me doing what I now call pwn to reown, where I had to pop a box because there was, you know, definitely some vulnerabilities there. And getting on that box, I'd see, you know, accounts from visitors that we had. And then in the Department of Aeronautics and Astronautics, we were getting hit from China a lot. So those IP, um, you know, IPs were resolving to Chinese address spaces. And it's not a surprise, right? But um, I think lawmakers now are often shocked because they're, you know, about 30 years behind what the foreign adversary threat, you know, has been after. And they're still like kind of focusing on private companies where they've completely ignored the fact that universities where a lot of the primary research takes place they are they are absolutely under attack and they have been for the last like 30 plus years yeah and i always find universities is like this particularly hard area uh there was one of the universities we work with and like the the CISO is just kind of trying to wrangle across different departments but like everybody kind of does their own thing and i mean it's, it's like a, a nightmare scenario for like what they're trying to secure and then also to your point i don't think people think enough about like how much they are actually attacked and are this kind of unique thing um how did how did some of that lead to the um, uh, hack the Pentagon like bug bounty like I, that was something I, I like don't know as like I, I'm familiar with it uh, but like the kind of origin of like how that came about was something I was like not familiar with and I was just curious if you could share. Totally. Well, it actually started with me working at Microsoft and I had been there only at the time only about three years, right? So I, I had started there in 2007. And um, it was 2010, I was about to leave. And I let my managers know, I said, hey, I'm going to go work at Adobe. I'm moving back to San Francisco. I'll see you later. And they were like, wait, don't go. Stay and work on uh, whether or not Microsoft should do a bug bounty. And I was like, what? You know, you've told the press that you'd never pay for vulnerabilities. I thought that was a done deal. Once you tell the press, you know, you're, you're, it's, it's off the table. And they said, no, no, we, we just want you to figure out like what, what that might look like for us. So fast forward, um, I had to do a lot of data analytics. I've given whole talks about the fact that, um, you know, Microsoft was receiving over 300,000 non-spam email messages a year. They still do um, to secure at Microsoft.com. And uh, by the way, one of my favorite T-shirts, I think was yours, Mark, from way back in the day. It was like, I think it was like a see you next Tuesday t-shirt oh, <laughs> for Microsoft. I think that's like a British thing. Yeah, no, something. but I mean, it was like see you next Tuesday, but with the Windows logo on it. I just yeah. feel like you were the first one that I saw wearing one of those. And I was like, that's a good it's, one. It's, it's possible. <laughs> right. But um, but no, I mean, so essentially 2010 was when Microsoft started looking into the idea of doing bug bounties, even though it was receiving all these bugs for free. And what I was able to do digging into the data was seeing, look, we're not receiving the bugs for the beta products during the beta period. Why? Because the only thing we were giving out instead of cash was recognition, right? And you don't get recognized unless there's a Microsoft security bulletin. You don't get a security bulletin for a beta product, right? So everybody was hoarding their bugs. And then you get a big spike of bugs after the you know beta turned into the gold version. And it was such a pain for, for Microsoft and for the customers who had, you know, early adopter customers were now hit with all these patching that they had to do. So um, convincing Microsoft based on the data that we could shape that traffic, if we put a bug bounty at the beginning of the beta period, we could get those bugs ahead of time because we we're providing not just recognition, but a little cash. And, you know, we got like 18 bulletin class bugs in 30 days. We paid maybe $28,000 total for them. So it was definitely worth it. And then we also put out, you know, um, the first bug bounty that from a vendor that was six figures. Like a lot of people don't remember. So it's it's almost the 10 year anniversary of when we launched those bug bounties. So it was, they, they actually launched in 2013. But um, you were asking about Hack the Pentagon. So what had happened was we launched the Microsoft bug bounties. 
the industry kind of did a little wobble being like, what just happened, you know, and everything. We thought only the crazy, you know, young punks at Google would do such a thing, right? Because Google had started paying bug bounties in 2010. Um, but what really happened was that combination of the data and the fact that Internet Explorer was losing ground, not just to Firefox, but now to Chrome. And Chrome had a bug bounty. So there was like this competition going on. Um, Interesting. You know, in, yeah, it was it was there's, like there's a, always this like whenever you hear of like like some security evolution somewhere that you always find there's some some business angle or story that like also helped, you know, bring people along to to what was already like a good idea, a good thing to do. But there's kind of this business driver behind the scenes that helped. Well, one of the biggest myths in business, I think, is when people say that they are data driven decision makers. Right. That is a lie. That is like what people do with data is they use the data to confirm their gut. And in this case, once I figured out, ah, they're pissed that they're being shown up by Google looking more, you know, security responsive. They're um, they're about to launch another version of the browser. Right. Um, and that and back then it was Internet Explorer 11 that was about to come out. And they said, you know, we can't look like old. You know, we can't look like IBM. Right now. So they basically said, yeah, let's do this. And it was the strong arm of the IE product team that actually got those bounties launched. And um, it was actually, I don't know if you remember, it's also around the right around now is the 10 year anniversary of the Snowden revelations. So what had happened was Microsoft was under like zip the lip lockdown. Nobody could talk about security except for me. I was the only person at Microsoft who was an authorized spokesperson who was allowed to talk about security because the product team insisted on the launch to coincide with the beginning of their beta period, which was like mid-June. So essentially, Snowden thing happened. A few weeks later, I'm launching the Microsoft bug bounties and I'm getting questions from the audience like, so you're buying those bugs to give them to the NSA and spying on us all. I'm like, no, my God. Like, no. <laughs> but what happened with Hack the Pentagon was they observed this kind of old dame of software, Microsoft, you know, biggest software company in the world at the time. And uh, they had not considered that doing a bug bounty would be possible for, for the U.S. government until they saw that. And I was giving a guest lecture at Harvard Kennedy School. MIT Sloan School was running like a sympo joint symposium. And in that audience was Michael Sulemeyer, who's a good friend of mine, but at the time we had just met, and he was uh, head of, of policy for the Office of the Secretary of Defense. So he invited me to brief the Pentagon. That started a conversation that lasted, you know, intermittently. I would come and answer their questions, you know, and whatnot all the way up until they called me up and they said, good news, we're going to start a bug bounty. I said, no, 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 I told you to start a vuln disclosure program first. Like, this is going to end in disaster. They're like, yes, we're going to start a bug bounty. And I'm like, okay, I see, you know, and everything. So we did it as a pilot. It was a three-week pilot. It launched in 2016. And um, it was wildly successful. What, what One of the funniest things about it, though, was Hacker friends that I knew were like, what do you mean we have to pre-register and provide our social security number? I'm not giving that to the government. And I'm like, honey, they gave that to you. They know who you are already. Like, <laughs> you get, I mean, do what you like. But honestly, you know, so that was that was actually how Hack the Pentagon was born. It was a child of the Microsoft bug bounties. Yeah, it was one to me, it was one of these crazy milestones of like thinking of my like early teenage total script kitty days of like, you know, script kidding my way around Pentagon systems or whatever else just to explore, to learn, you know, nothing, nothing trying to break stuff. But um, when I saw that actually come out, I was like, what cool times do we live in? Like it, right. it, just the idea that you could be uh, doing all that legitimately um, is just the cool, the coolest thing. And uh, yeah, the, how, how do you think, um, like, like bug bounties in, in, in general, like, how do you think that whole world has, has evolved? Like it, it's, it's more common now for companies to do them. You know, we have ours, I think, uh, there's obviously a lot of focus on, um, how do you help companies make efficient ones, <laughs> which, which is worth talking about. Cause I think sometimes companies kind of do like the, you know, they check the box as far as I have a bug bounty program, but like, are they doing it right or not? I'd be curious to explore, but yeah, how do you think it's that, that kind of, um, 
uh, area of bug bounties has kind of evolved over time? And, and uh, how do you think it is kind of today, whether it's working well or, or not kind of in a, in a broad sense? You know, it's a great question because on the one hand, I'm excited that bug bounties have spread like wildfire because that means that more people like us stay out of jail and get paid. Right. Um, that is that's that's a great outcome. And more people have heard about vulnerability disclosure because of bug bounties. Right. Um, even though for me, the process is backwards. Like a lot of people will, like you said, will check the box. I call that bug bounty Botox. I'm like, woo. You think that makes you pretty? No, you know, you got to be pretty on the inside. But I think um, what a lot of people missed is they will talk about their bug bounty metrics and they'll talk about things that are, frankly, they're not metrics of security at all. They're just budget metrics. They'll be like, we got this many Vuln reports and spent this much uh, on the bug bounty program. I'm like, great, but how did your security improve overall? Like, what classes of vulnerabilities did you wipe out? Holy. And that's often a question that they're like, Cla class of class of what? Class of, I don't understand what you're asking, because they haven't even been categorizing their bugs. They haven't been looking at bugs as a symptom of underlying security malaise. You know what I mean? Like, they have not, they missed the whole point, which is that's supposed to catch what you miss in your security process. And a lot of them are skipping Lovely. to bug bounty as like a cheap way to find out where their security holes are. And it's like, you should have fucked around earlier to find out. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. You should have fucked with yourself first. And now you're getting like cheap scanner tool bugs or like configuration errors that, again, you should have been looking for and you should have had processes to fix. So on the one hand, thrilled that it's popularized, you know, ways to pay and not prosecute my people but on the other hand it's not really you know it it hasn't the tide has not uh made all ships rise as we hope they would in security yep no and it, it's really interesting what you're saying of the um like are people step, stepping back and like not just the kind of i feel like there's this easy uh, to your point, like stats you can kind of generate. And I, I know even at like board levels, people are like, we have a bug bounty and look how many things we found. And it's this easy thing to put on a PowerPoint slide. But like the important part is what you were saying about like, how are we doing on certain bug classes? How are we doing to uh, hope, hopefully kind of um, harden our software or our systems in a way that is like, even if there is a one-off bug, it doesn't have to mean the end of the world. feels like we're kind of relearning. Um, yeah, you were mentioning you know, early days, you know, using early versions of Nessus and kind of Vuln scanning and all that. And there's the, the kind of whack-a-mole whack approach to, to vulnerability scanning versus like, are you well architecting your environment? That seems very similar in the kind of uh, bug space, that sort of challenge. So it's uh, hopefully for folks listening, it's something that they're, uh, uh, when they think about their own bug bounty programs and how to actually evolve it uh, to not just be that whack-a-mole. Honestly, people underestimate the types of job role that it takes to actually run these programs correctly. A lot of people are like, yeah, yeah, you have to have someone who's ready to fix the bug. So we've got our developers working on that. And I'm like, well, your developers wrote the bug. So they might not be, you might have a missing missing link in there, you know, of, a, of real security people and security architecture people. Um, but it's also, you know, some of the more, uh, or less glamorous jobs in security. There's like legit program management that keeps bugs from, you know, being endlessly deferred. There are program management jobs, you know, in making sure that bugs stay under the, you know, relatively attainable 90-day target to fix. Um, and I think that the other major thing that, you know, modern bug bounties have done is that they've, they've, unfairly joined the idea of non-disclosure agreements in what, you know, would be perfectly fine in a contracted penetration test versus these non-disclosure agreements um, implied or enforced, you know, both in these bug bounty platforms. And, you know, the bug bounty platforms themselves are simply selling the illusion of control. They're not, yep. you know, they're not actually helping the organization get more secure if they're letting, you know, people have private bug bounties that are under NDA and they just kind of learn about the bugs and never have to fix them. But it's also bad for the researchers because unlike a contracted pen test, you're signing away, you know, your ability to talk about these bugs in exchange for a fixed fee. And that's yeah. fair. You know, that's a fair exchange of your time and labor. 
it's not a fair exchange in bug bounty, you know, bug bounty world. So anyway, there's a lot going on there that, you know, we could spend an entire podcast talking about, but, um, but that is, you know, that that's some of the major issues I think where people misunderstand what is the best application of a bug bounty. And really the answer is the number and severity and exploitability of your bugs should be going down. And if they're not, you got a problem. You know, you've got systemic problems that are not going to be solved by a bug bounty, no matter how not many non-disclosure agreements you slap on it. Um, it's you're not getting better at security unless those stats are moving in the right direction. One of the things that you know I've come and commonly come across with these kind of things where people say we've got a bug bounty program, we've got a vulnerability disclosure thing is exactly the things you're talking about there of, oh, we've got a security guy, we've got an engineer who's responsible for this, and then someone reports something, and usually it's a communication breakdown. You end up in some internal email loop, you're not talking to the person who's reported it, they get annoyed and go and blog about it, all these kind of things go wrong. And then you've talked about some of the other important drivers there. One of the things that interests me is when you're talking about building bug bounty programs, you always say the word sustainable. What do you mean by making a bug bounty program sustainable? So, you know, much like civilizations, they rise and fall. And I would say security civilizations within organizations rise and fall. You may have some very energetic, visionary folks, um, technical practitioners who really understand the problem, but they understand the problem at a point in time in the organization, right? And they may stand up an amazingly effective bug bounty program. All the engineers, you know, have enough security knowledge that bugs don't get left behind, no bug left behind. And it's chugging along for quite some time until those people leave. And they don't all leave at once, but they matriculate out. Um, and eventually what happens is you're left with a program that people knew how to run when it was sort of a passion project and they were good at it. But then suddenly, you know, there are the regular developers who maybe don't have, aren't well-versed in security. And you lost a program manager, you know, to some other project. And so there's nobody making sure that none of the bugs are, are falling on the floor. And that's honestly, we, we get two kinds of customers coming to us. We get the kinds of customers that say, you know, like the UK government, when they came to us, they were like, we've been doing vuln disclosure, but we want to formalize it. So help us formalize it and help us create a maturity assessment so that different government departments can know when they're ready and onboard themselves into like the centralized vulnerability disclosure program for all, the whole UK gov. So that's one kind of customer where they know that it takes sustainable process, maturity assessments, and then and an onboarding process, right? And then there are the companies that come to us. Um, so Zoom is a great example. You know, we've publicly worked with them. They were a publicly traded company already by the time we uh, they asked us to step in, but they had a big zero-day problem, and they were running bug bounties on the two major U.S. platforms. So they had two bug bounty programs going, and they still couldn't contain it. Why? Because they were missing, it's almost like the connective tissue inside, you know, the organization, right? They just didn't have yeah. it. And so we had to hire, train, build out their process, build out their standard operating procedures, and leave them with something that could be passed on no matter who was sitting in role. And that's one of the other things too, is that a lot of the um, the jobs, you know, that, that, are needed for sustainable bug bounty or vuln disclosure programs are jobs that people do not want to hold in security for more than a couple of years. It's, it's a high intensity job. And once you get really good at it, you kind of want to move up and out. So you're constantly losing, um, you know, the tribal knowledge inside organizations. So if you don't have that, you know, strong process developed with, you know, standard operating procedures actually documented, you will, you know, have a great fall of your civilization, your security aqueducts will start crumbling, and then suddenly people are wondering why they're not getting security patches, aka water anymore in Rome, right? So yeah. that is, that's what I'm talking about when I talk about sustainable security okay. programs. And was that one of the kind of the, the founding ideals for Luta Security to build that sustainability and resiliency in your clients' security programs? Yeah, I mean, there was honestly, there, and there still isn't, any other company that I've heard of that actually understands like this is what you need to build and this is how you can use this, you know, use the program, not just to say like, boop, we've got a vuln disclosure program or a bug bounty program, but use the program to materially measure and improve your security. Because like I said, 
it's a symptom. Bugs are a symptom, you know, and whether you're writing software yourself or you're just, you know, managing third party software just to run your company or your organization and you just happen to sit on the Internet with it, you have to do some kind of vulnerability management and the, you know, the inspiration for us was really that nobody was doing, um, you know, the the inside work, right? Like there's two ISO standards that I co-authored. One is on vuln disclosure, which is 29147. That's one of my future knuckle tattoos. And the other one is going to be, <laughs> is 30111, right? You know, um, but that's the inside process. And that you know, that goes whether you're being uh, told about a vulnerability from the outside or whether you find it yourself. So most organizations just lack that digestive system for bugs. And that's what we teach. And that's what we staff, um, you know, and what's cool is that we let our customers at the end of our staff augmentation, they can hire our contractors straight out of our engagement and they just flip a badge color, you know, from contractor to permanent employee. Um, and it doesn't really hurt us because we know that that role is really, you know, people only want to hold it for a couple of years. So we're basically a cybersecurity workforce pipeline, you know, just as a result of building out these processes for so many companies and governments. And I'm curious how you found the transitions to founding your own company and being a CEO from the previous roles you've held. Do you find you've got more freedom to pursue the things you've got curiosity in or do you think you've got less freedom now to do that and you, you're more having to focus on the day to day business? Uh, that's a great question. You know, honestly, there are certain elements of the business that are very annoying. Like one of the states where we do business, like keeps losing our our uh, state paperwork and whatnot. So that's annoying. But that's actually something that, you know, the, the bigger businesses, they, you know, they, they just have uh, lots of people to deal with that. We have, you know, we have our, our tax folks and our operations folks dealing with it, but it's just very annoying. Um, but I would say the freedom that it's given me has been amazing because I'm super neurodivergent, ADHD, um, and I need time to unwind. So I've been able to do things, you know, as a benevolent dictator of my company that make the workplace work for me. And I think other neurodivergent or, you know, neurotypical people as well. And part of that is a four-day work week. So our full-time employees get all Fridays' as paid time off. Um, if something that looks, you know, like it's important comes in, I am the one who falls on the grenade and I, I tell whatever external person, hey, all my FTEs have, you know, Fridays' as PTO. Someone will get back to you next week, that kind of thing. Um, but that gives me sort of the, the mental space to be more creative, to unwind from the workday and whatnot. And... Um, you know, I'm sure there will be a, a time when when my company grows to a certain size where we can't, you know, kind of enforce the same day off for everybody. But for right now, it, it really works for us. And I, I love that. Um, what I will say is that people coming from other corporate environments have corporate PTSD and it takes them a few like weeks at least to get used to the fact that I really don't want them emailing anybody on the weekends. I really don't want them checking, you know, while they're on vacation and stuff like that. And honestly, it gives me anxiety when they do it. So I have to frame it like that. I'm like, you're you're harshing my weekend right now. So you just stop. <laughs> like the boss is telling you you're annoying me, like and you know, and whatnot. But I I save those emails for Monday morning, right? Draft them, stash them, send them out, and try and set that example. Um, but I don't know. I I think that um, you know, I think all companies should explore flexible working arrangements because, you know, clearly uh, being neurodivergent doesn't impede you from having a successful career if you can make room for it. Yeah. And, you know, that area of um, you're, you're covering security vulnerabilities, you're helping people out and neurodivergent there. There's actually, when I've been doing the research into yourself, there's, there's so many problems out there you're trying to solve in the world. So Maybe you could tell us a little bit about the what you've been doing with the uh, Pay Equity Now Foundation and the work of uh, the Manglona Lab at Penn State Law, because I think that's just a wonderful thing to hear about. So I, you know, I was the lead plaintiff in the attempted class action gender discrimination lawsuit against Microsoft for pay and promotion inequity. 
And the long and short of that is that we failed to get class certified here in the state of Washington, whereas if I had lived in California, California has differing state laws where, you know, if the data doesn't lie and there's a group of people that are getting paid less, that group of people is automatically certified as a class under California law. So my same lawyers actually brought a very similar case against Google and Google had to settle for over $160 million to back pay, you know, a lot of the underpaid, underpromoted women in their workforce. Microsoft got away with it, though, because I live in a state that doesn't have that law. Um, and, you know, at the federal level, it's almost impossible these days to get a class action certified, which everyone should be very, very worried about. And the reason for that is Walmart got away with essentially arguing Yes, we know that all the women and the brown people were paid less systemically, but that's because we sure did hire a bunch of prejudice managers and they all just made those individual decisions. So, you know, Walmart wasn't held accountable at a corporate level. Therefore, federally, we're not going to get the same justice under the law. So hence me deciding to drop my case, form the Pay Equity Now Foundation, which, you know, the premise is very simple. It's just like any other vulnerability or bug, you audit for it and you correct it. And that's really the premise that I want all organizations to take a look at themselves, audit for pay and promotion inequity across, you know, um, all the underrepresented groups, and then just correct for it and do it every year. And then the Manglona Lab, that's named after my late mom, the one who got me the Commodore 64. The RTFM. Right, and RTFM, yeah. <laughs> but she was systemically underpaid and underpromoted her whole career, and that would have absolutely changed the trajectory of all of our lives. And she might even still be with us today, fuck cancer, but she might still be with us today if she hadn't had to work so darn hard her whole life. So I chose Penn State Law not because I, you know, had any connection myself, but because a really good friend of mine, um, Professor Andrea Matwishin, works there. And she started the pilot lab, which was all about the intersection of law and technology. She's actually a hero. She drafted uh, the language that went into the DMCA exemption for security research. So she is she is an unsung hero and we should make stickers of her and like plaster Vegas with them. But um, I asked her, you know, if the college would be a good place to start a lab like this uh, focused on pay inequity. And she said, yeah, absolutely. So um just recently, I met, I went there, I met with the executive director and some of the students who were working on some cases and everything. Um, and I found out from the executive director, there are only three law labs in the top 100 law schools in the entire United States that focus on equity issues at all. And exactly one focuses on gender pay equity issues. So Obviously, um, you know, we need to actually correct, like consciously correct this bug. You know, think of it like a whole bunch of format string vulnerabilities, right? Easy to scan for, easy to fix once you know what you're looking for. And we just have to, as a society, decide to fix it. Um, because right now, uh, I don't know what gender your kid, your kid is or the one that's on the way, Mark. Going to have one of each, so I get to learn learn it all. <laughs> oh my god! So that's heartbreaking. I've I've got one of each too because I know the one that is male is going to have a much easier time getting paid what he's worth, um, as opposed to the one that's female. And uh, right now, the trajectory is even for white women, it's going to be more than fifty five zero years until white women achieve pay equity with white men. It gets worse the darker your skin is. So professional and the higher you go up in the professional ladder that's another surprising fact it's like black female surgeons have the biggest pay gap between themselves and white male surgeons and that's outrageous right so anyway um we should talk about something else so that this is the last thing that we talk about no. but obviously it's a passion of no, mine but it's, you know, it's something that should be a passion for everyone because we are 100%. leaving good talent behind. Yeah. Um, and 100%. it's not just pay, it's promotions, right? It was yep. easier for me when I was a hacker for a living because I could be like, I popped that box and no one could argue with me because I popped that box. But when I tried to move up the ranks, it was like questioning if I was ready and questioning this and, you know, all of these things that I saw, you know, much less experienced males being promoted over me who hadn't done nearly what I had done or had the experience I had. So that is something we need to correct. 
like a bug. Absolutely. And that's the reason I, I you know, I brought the question up because I just, it, it really impressed me the, the way you were approaching it. I think it was a Vice News article that said you were basically, you know, taking the hacker mindset to this problem and actually just putting it in front of people in very plain terms of, of being able to audit and being able to correct for these things. And, you know, we want to, in the same way of bugs, we want to knock out entire classes of these issues and, and make them non-existent. Oh, totally. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that came up in the research was uh, the, the issues you had with Clubhouse. So maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, what you discovered with the Clubhouse social media. Okay, so one, I didn't mean to, but accidents happen. And what happened there <laughs> Wait, was... Am I, yeah. Have I just been living under a rock or living under a server? Why have I never heard of accident before? <laughs> oh, my God. I, just, I, I can't believe I just said that out loud. I'm probably going to get it flamed. I'm going to get flamed online. It's probably like such a used word and I've I've never heard it. Oh my God. The, yeah, it was a accident. It was very innocent. So what happened was um, I had joined Clubhouse right when it was like super hot for that, you know, two months or whatever it was that it was, it was really ramping up and um, got an invitation and they were talking about um, some security vulnerabilities that, you know, and, and some issues with like data going through China, et cetera, et cetera. So apparently, if you just logged out of the application and logged back in, it would force an update. So before I got the forced update, I was like, I have another phone. Why don't I just like install it fresh, you know, the new version on the new phone, leave my old phone logged in and just like see if I can see any differences, right? So I happened to be in a clubhouse room. When I had downloaded, you know, the Clubhouse client, the brand new one, onto the second phone, and I start messing around, you know, I log into the second phone, and I realize it doesn't log me out of the first one, not entirely. It presents the logout screen, but I can still hear everybody, and I can still talk to everybody using phone number one. So I'm like, hold on a minute, you know? What else can I do with this? So playing around with it and everything, found out phone number two, I could appear to join a room. So first of all, I wasn't even in the room that I was ghosting in, you know, on phone number one, in phone number two. I had to join that room from phone number two. Once I was in there, I could leave the room on phone number two, but phone number one session was still alive the whole time. But this did something really weird. It removed my avatar from the room. So I became ungovernable. I became completely like a ghost in the room where I could hear everything. I could spam it with, you know, if I'd ever been given stage access or microphone access, I could spam the room and I couldn't be silenced by the moderator or the creator of the room. They'd have to shut the room down to get rid of me. So anyway, I wrote up I wrote up, you know, what I had found. It was clearly it was session management related. You know, they were just being sloppy with session management and uh, yeah. tried to find a security contact. It was almost impossible. Then I heard they were running a bug bounty program, but I couldn't find anything on any of the bug bounty platforms, public pages. So finally, I had to pull like a, do you know who I am? <laughs> and I sent like yet another message and I was like, Listen, I come in peace, but I wrote these ISO standards and here's a video of me talking about the ISO standards. Here's a video of me talking about the five stages of vulnerability response grief. And I'm sorry, but like you guys are in denial right now. And I'm going to disclose this publicly if I don't hear back from somebody. And all of a sudden, yeah. one of the founders replies back to me and is like, hold on, you know, we have a bug bounty program. Go over here. And I'm like, I'm not signing your NDA. Clearly, like yeah. this is not. This is not a case where you get to sort of herd me off into a platform. I said, if it qualifies for a bounty, you can donate it to the Pay Equity Now Foundation. Like, that would be a nice thing for you to do. Um, yeah. So we got through them supposedly fixing it. And I was like, well, the original, you know, repro doesn't work, but that doesn't prove that you're properly managing the session on the back end. I'm not going to write any, you know, any tools to try and intercept the, you know, the session tokens just to prove you wrong, but I am going to write this up in a blog post. And I will say that it appears that you address the vulnerability. And they were so mad about that. They were like, no, we, we fixed it. And I'm like, no, you cut off the repro, but trust me, I'm not new. I know for a fact that you, you probably yeah. did it the quick and dirty way, right? <laughs> anyway, it all comes out publicly 
and then people from the woodwork well, I, start. So, I mean, sorry to interrupt you. I just, yeah, it, no, I always love how like vendors put, put the burden back on the researcher of like, yeah, we want you to say it's fixed. I'm like, I, I don't have the code. I'm not like, I'm not your company that's like going through it all. Like you guys can say that and you can show whatever technical thing to prove it. But like, the, it's like, it's weird that they put the onus on the researcher of like, you know, you, you be the one to tell the world that we fixed it right. It's like, that's not, that's not my responsibility. <laughs> like, it's so bizarre that that happens. No, and that was all yeah. I kept saying to them. I said, no, no, you fixed, I can't repro it just using two phones anymore. But chances yeah. are, you know, if I intercept it, if I actually bothered to intercept your, your you know, your session management tokens, I'm pretty sure I could still replay them. But, you know, fine, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt. And I'll just say it appears to be remediated. And that was, yeah. I thought it was pretty generous of me. It's pretty generous. Yeah. Yeah. So then, you know, it all comes out publicly and everything. And um, and then out of the woodwork, a bunch of other Clubhouse users were like, you know, I told them about this issue. I accidentally found this issue, too. And like these are non-security people. So they didn't know, you know, kind of the protocol of like they could have gone public. I think a lot of them, too, were trying to build their like influencer brand on the platform. So they were very afraid of pissing off. The clubhouse gods, you know, because they were, you know, hoping, yeah, that they would become the next, you know, big thing on the next big social media platform. But what was striking to me was when I finally did get on the phone or on a on a video call with one of the founders, right, to walk through the vulnerability when I was first disclosing it, I asked him, I said, so, I mean, how many people do you have working on security right now? And he's like, well, I mean, I work on it directly. And and he tried to tell me, he's like, I wrote code for Google. I worked at Google. And I'm like, Google also has security bugs. Congratulations, you know. But he kept like <laughs> trying to use it like almost like I was an investor that he was trying to impress with his credentials. Right. And I was like, I, I understand you coded for a big company. Good, good, good job, you know. Yeah. But I was yeah. I was basically like, yeah, that you still have bugs. And this was like a pedestrian bug that literally two phones, two phones, my man, you know, and everything. And. At the time, their company that was had a hundred million dollars of investment, they were at a one billion dollar plus valuation. I think there was there were rumors that Twitter was going to buy them for four billion dollars, you know, and stuff. So this was what was going on at the time. They had fewer employees at their company than I had at mine, you know, my bootstrap startup. So I was like, you and they had one of the co-founders working on security. So I looked at that. Honestly, I looked at that as an indictment of our startup industry, you know, where um, startup companies are not at all incentivized by their investors to do anything but grow and grow as fast as possible. And at that point, they had maybe 10 million users. That's a lot of users to not have a security or privacy team at all. And you've got an audio app, like an app that literally turns on the mic of your phone. So, um, <laughs> I don't know, when I, when I, I know what possibly got So when I do <laughs> advise governments, you know, in our own government about like, what should we be doing? I'm like, well, you know, let's put aside the, the question of it's about time for some software liability, you know, laws, but let's put in, um, you know, some thinking around if there are multi-million dollar companies that have been invested in with millions of dollars, there's absolutely no excuse then, you know, to for them not to be investing in security, especially if it's essentially where they're trying to build out a huge user base. If they've built out a huge user base, they have a huge responsibility, right? With great users come great responsibility. And they should be told that, you know, hey, you're going to get fined very seriously if you haven't built any security in. And no, a bug bounty program does not count, right? Like it is not, that's not the yep. security win that you think it is. Um, but yeah, they had a bug bounty program before they had a security team. And we hear this over and over again. It was crazy. Um, so, yeah. Oh, and we find out that bug wasn't fixed after all. It still worked. It's just, uh, you know, you just had to intercept the, uh, the session. I know, right? Uh, no, that's kind of what you were saying earlier. It's great that there's like awareness of bug bounty programs and things of that, but it's it's also become like this checkbox of like sign up for one and you don't have to actually go do any of the real security because you could just say, it's like, it's, you know, yet another version of, as, as has happened in the last 20 plus years of security of like, 
just security insurance, right? Where you're like not really doing the right thing. You're just kind of checking some boxes like an insurance to say you are doing things, which is crazy. Yeah. Well, and I hear about payouts that to me are like unconscionable that that bug existed, right? Like I just remember seeing a whole write-up about uh, it was a telco company and they were like, good news, everyone, our bug bounty program. We just paid out $1,000 to this wonderful hacker over here who let us know that our API for, you know, querying location, if you knew a phone number, that it had no authentication. Thanks, hacker. You know, and you're just sitting there like, what the, who, who decided that security through obscurity for an API that reveals location information for anybody you have the phone number for, who thought that went through and let that out into the world? And you needed a bug bounty program and now you're proud of yourself? I'm just like, your room is dirty and you just, you know, you literally like just spritzed some air freshener, hung one of those little Christmas trees on the front door and you're like, look at that. Smells pretty good, right? And I'm like, no. Oh, there's piles of rotten pizza in there. It's disgusting. One of the uh, things you mentioned when dealing with that company was you were pointing them at certain documented standards you've been involved with. You know, you mentioned the, you know, we won't go down the route, but there's the software liability things. What do you think in the you know next five, 10 years, the role of governance regulation should be in starting to close down those those vast gaps that we're seeing today in these companies doing whatever they feel like and thinking they'll tick the box? Well, I'll tell you where it's going right now, which is, I think, a very unproductive um, area of regulation. And this is where governments are trying to copycat what they think they see coming out of China. Right. So China changed its regulations around vulnerability disclosure. It basically said you can't drop ODA, you know, on anything unless like you've, you're given permission. Um, and also and this is for Chinese researchers and Chinese companies and saying things like if a Chinese company becomes aware of a vulnerability, they have to tell the Chinese government within two days. Right. So Alibaba had the researchers that found Log4j. Alibaba, the company got punished by the Chinese government and basically kicked out of an information sharing program with the Chinese government as punishment for not telling them two days in about Log4j, right? Because presumably Alibaba's software was also vulnerable to it. Um, so what I see is unproductive regulatory murmurings from ourselves and our allies um, where they're like, oh, me too. We want to know about vulns as the government, like super early in the disclosure process. And I will say that that is so misguided. All, all it will do is, you know, essentially concentrate bugs in governments that historically have not been great at defending themselves, right? Every government, you know, has been breached, but certainly some more than others. And I would say <laughs> if I were an adversary, as I have been professionally, you know, before, I would go, you know, it's like, why do you rob banks? Because that's where the money is. Why not go to what I call the buggy bank? Like if you're concentrating bugs from all the corporations in a given country into their government, oh, my God, that simplifies, you know, attacking and being able to, you know, really put a, a, a country at, at huge risk. So you were saying, like, what direction should we be going? I'm seeing a tide of a direction that is not only nonproductive, but it's actually going to make us more vulnerable to our adversaries, any adversary. Um, and, you know, my government, um, you know, my government advisory roles, like one of them, you know, for, for DHS, the Cyber Safety Review Board, we had to do the whole like oath thing, you know, that they, they do swearing people into Congress or becoming president where you swear you swear to protect the United States against enemies, foreign and domestic. And to me, that type of legislation and that type of re uh, regulatory proposal, that is an enemy of the United States. That type of, of um, early warning for people who are not party to actually writing the code to fix those bugs, that's breaking the norms of disclosure in a really bad way. And it's going to lead to a lot of damage. I wish I could tell you like, oh, there's this great thing happening, you know, in regulation and I really support it. But no, mostly it's like, me being like, that's a terrible idea. We're all going to die. You know? <laughs> that's like my job now. I'm like, nope, that's, we're all going to die that way. Let's not do that. <laughs> so, so maybe ending on the, the uh, advice front for, you know, anybody that's maybe kind of new to the field. Uh, we were kind of chatting just before, uh, you know, we started recording that 
um, uh, if I could say this, but you know, you were mentioning, um, you're, you're definitely my, my elder, although, uh, yes. uh, visually I think people would think the opposite. Um, but yeah, I actually, you know, my earliest, and I can't remember if it was like a black hat DEF CON, whatever, but, um, I, I remember early in my career and it was, um, conferences could be very kind of intimidating at, at some level, right. Um, where, uh, uh, there's a lot going on. Uh, there's also a lot, like you were saying, of of people trying to keep everybody out, right? From I have the secret information, nobody, and it's like ev even worse depending on a number of factors, right? Um, I always just remember you being like extremely like welcoming uh, and an extremely like I don't know how to put it, just like looking out for people. Um, and so when you kind of think of that backdrop, which which a thank you for being that person. Um, but when you think about for for people that are maybe new getting into the kind of field whether they're navigating things kind of technically or on like a personal level, uh, just any advice you have for somebody that's kind of newer getting started in, in security? Honestly, you know, and thanks for remembering that I've always been con mom, always making sure like, have you eaten? Did you drink water? You know, <laughs> you need some sunscreen. <laughs> so I've always been con mom. But um, no, I mean, I would, I would say that uh, there are, they, there are continually gatekeepers in our industry. And, you know, I tend to gatekeep around people who have that, um, I know, you know, I know what the best thing to do with bug bounties are. And I tend to gatekeep and be like, no, you don't, no, you don't, you know, and everything. But outside <laughs> of my specific area where I'm like, no, no, I tried that, definitely won't work. Um, I would say, you know, that, ignoring the gatekeepers for the most part is a good thing you know um capturing the hacker mindset of observing the system figuring out how it works and bending it to your will that that could be said of any industry right any industry any political system it's trying to reverse engineer what makes it work and what are the levers that you can that you can use you know that are potentially novel that people have not applied yet. Um, so early in your cyber career, you know, learn as much as you can. Definitely don't take anybody's word as doctrine unless it's me about bug bounties in that in that case, definitely, you know. But aside from that, right? No, um, but I would say that there's, I mean, you can learn from anybody at any level in your career. And then the last bit is, um, know the difference between a mentor and a sponsor. So a mentor is someone who ideally, you know, will help you along. And the best like span ahead of you for a mentor is usually about five years ahead in your career because they're actually, they're going to be much more versed with what worked for them almost contemporaneously. And certainly things can change a lot in half a decade, but they're going to be closer, right, to you. And that's a great mm -hmm. mentor. And there's a lot of mutual mentorship that can happen. A sponsor is something different. A sponsor is usually an executive who's very far ahead in their career, and they can spot opportunities for you. They can say, you know what, if you learn this thing, I can introduce you to this person because I see something in you that is worth, you know, developing and whatnot. And it's different than that mentor role that's more of a day-to-day -day. Um, Sponsors are what give you a leg up in your career, and I've been really lucky to have a lot of those. That's excellent. And as we wrap up, where can people find you? Or more information about yourself or your company on online? Um, so the company is called Luta Security. So if you go to lutasecurity.com to contact us, you just use info at lutasecurity.com. And for those of you who are curious about the name, it is named after the nickname of the tropical island just north of Guam where my mom was born. So um, that is that is where the name comes from. And actually... In our logo, where it says Luta, the T is um, what's called a latte stone. Um, I'm half Chamorro. That is the native Pacific Islander that my mom was. And uh, the latte stones are these ancient structures where we would build, you know, our, our homes on top of them. You know, it was flood proof. It was a little bit of enhanced security. You could pull up the ladder and uh, give someone a real hard time. But it's a symbol of Chamorro's strength. And uh, a lot of people see the hibiscus, the pink, you know, motif of the of my company. And they say, you know, this isn't like normal security companies, you know, that have shields and swords and armor and all this kind of, you know, big masculine energy. And I'm like, 
Yeah. I've got a enduring culture of over 5,000 years embedded in my logo. So there you go. There we go. Sustainability and resiliency woven right through the company uh, heritage there. So that's that's fantastic. So that's all we have time for today on the Adventures of Alice and Bob. I'd really like to thank our guest, Katie Mazuris, for sharing a story from RTFM to CEO. And whether you realize it or not, the passion, the curiosity and the expertise Katie brings have built the sustainable bug bounty and vulnerability disclosure programs that have really shaped the world of software and infrastructure around us on a daily basis. So I'd like to extend a really heartfelt thanks for all that hard work that she does and continues to do to make the world better. I'd also like to thank my accidental co-host, Mark Mayfrey. Accidental. accidental. And super producer, Ben, for whom, uh, without whom the podcast wouldn't be possible. So I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks for listening to The Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it. 